publicity is the very soul of justice because it's a basic principle in a democracy. When you have a whole operation of justice that happens behind closed doors, you lose cross-fertilisation of ideas, you lose challenge. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest edition of the Resolution podcast. Today's edition is called Transparency, the very soul of justice. Anita is going to be speaking to Louise Tickle and Celia Kitzinger. Louise and Celia have been hugely involved in the movement to bring transparency and openness to the family court and the court of protection. Louise Tickle is an award-winning campaigning journalist who has written extensively for The Guardian and numerous other publications. She's a founding member of the Transparency Project, a group campaigning for transparency in family law proceedings in England. Professor Celia Kitzinger is a psychologist and an honorary professor at Cardiff University School of Law and Politics. In 2016, she won a Lifetime Achievement Award from the British Psychological Society. She is a founding member of Open Justice Court of Protection. Celia and Louise, welcome to the podcast. Let me say at the outset, thank you both for giving up your time to share your insights with our listeners about transparency. Celia, perhaps I could go to you first and ask you, for those who are not familiar with your work, how it is that an academic psychologist has ended up as a co-founder of a project about open justice in the Court of Protection. Yes, certainly. I became involved with the Court of Protection and with the Mental Capacity Act through family experience. And this happens to many of us in our lives. Um, So my sister was very profoundly brain injured in a car accident in 2009. And we had expected to be able to make decisions on her behalf when she could no longer do so. And that is not what the law permits. We were quite shocked. It felt like having her kidnapped and doctors making decisions. And if we didn't agree with the doctors, the court of protection, then making the decisions. And that gave us the first, our first exposure to the role of the law for people who lack capacity to make decisions for themselves. Following that experience, we became involved in supporting other families as they went through court protection hearings. And these were all serious medical cases. So the the ones before the tier three judges in the family courts, effectively. We, I then found myself involved in the first ever remote hearing in the court of protection at the beginning of lockdown. So 24 hours after the prime minister had announced to the nation that we that there were social distancing measures in place and we should avoid all unnecessary contact. I was supporting the daughter of someone who was involved in a court of protection case concerning serious medical treatment. It was treatment withdrawal from her father. And that was the first case that was all remote. It was done over Skype for business. It was a truly horrific experience. It was unbelievably awful, um, in part because of the technology and because of the way that the lawyers were very focused on getting it all to work and no protocols or procedures had yet been worked out for how to do this in a way that retained the gravitas of the court and also the empathy that can be engaged in when 
people are co-present rather than dealing with this over the internet. So following that experience, I decided I needed to observe more hearings because they'd all gone online by then and started to do so myself, tweeted about it, realized how excited other people were in the opportunity to observe court of protection hearings. And then Jill Looms Quinn, who's a disability rights activist said, you really need to create a project, a website and start enabling other people to do this. She joined forces with me. And so on the 15th of June, 2020, the Open Justice Court of Protection project was born. So you've just celebrated your first birthday. Yeah, we've just celebrated our first birthday with more than 140 blog posts um, from members of the public, uh, with uh, I think nearly 100 different authors, um, with literally thousands of people that we've supported to observe court hearings. And we couldn't have imagined being in the place that we are now with the very huge change that we have helped to facilitate in transparency in the Court of Protection. Thank you. Louise, most of our listeners will know your name and some of the work you do, but what's the specific project you're involved with at the moment? Well, just just hearing Celia, I feel green with envy. I remember the very first blog post coming out when she was supporting that woman. And, um, and I've watched her project grow over the last year. And my project is, uh, it's wanting to do the same thing, but in the family court, which is fundamentally more difficult because of course, the ban on reporting proceedings held in private remains effective in the family court because court of protection is now held in public. So I am scoping out with funding from the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust, the possibility of doing effectively an open justice family court reporting pilot project. We're we're sort of six months through nearly that scoping exercise and lots of stuff has been put in place, but it still remains something that that I can't do without the, well, without the approval of the president, really. Um, So I I am effectively in his hands um, unless and until Section 12 of the Administration of Justice Act gets repealed, which I am in favour of. And we might talk about that later. Well, I know that you've been involved in drafting the proposal for the Law Commission, haven't you? Yes. So that was, in fact, drafted really mainly by His Honour Clifford Bellamy and Sir James Mumby. And, you know, obviously there was lots of going round the other signatories, Lucy Reid, Julie Doughty and myself for feedback. And yeah, I think it's a really strong proposal. And it makes the arguments, I think, with, you know, Sir James and Clifford Bellamy's many years of experience of hearing cases as judges and understanding in very subtle and nuanced ways, the manners in which the restrictions on freedom of expression impede so many of the things which could, well, I guess, in in the view of the signatories to that proposal, which could improve family justice for the future. Well, let's get into the meat of this, really, and the reason why the two of you are guests on the Resolution podcast. I've had a little bit of an opportunity to tell you both about Resolution and the work we do and the kinds of cases that we do. And you know that we are a body mainly made up of lawyers, but also other professionals working in in family justice. And really what I would like to ask you, each of you to address is what in your view is the benefit of transparency in respect of these cases? And in particular, I'm thinking about cases where we're not talking about uh, the state necessarily being involved, but 
sometimes cases that just involve private individuals. Louise, shall I come to you first on that? Mm, sure. The state is always involved because the judiciary is an arm of the state. In family law cases, the judge is judge and jury. And if you have the level of power being exerted by one person that is exerted in a family law case, then, you know, it has been described as by Sir James Bumby as, as, you know, amongst the most draconian of powers that a judge is empowered to make now that capital punishment is no longer available as a sentence. So, you know, the state can do huge things to your private and family life. It can expunge your relationship in law to your child. It can decide who and, you know, where your child sees you it can it can change their name it can change the physical place where your child lives it can decide that you have not been domestically abused because you haven't been able to prove it to the civil standard and it then treats you going forward as if you have not been and all of those powers exerted in secret mean that it's not just the fact that those powers can be exerted in individual cases it's the fact that when you have a whole operation of justice that happens behind closed doors. You lose cross-fertilization of ideas. You lose challenge. You lose the opportunity, which, which Celia's pilot has just incredibly flourished because of, which is the expertise and knowledge of all these different disciplines, commenting, bringing to bear their expertise on something which matters enormously to society. And of course, to the individual people involved in any particular case. So transparency isn't a nebulous concept really and I tried to talk about the public interest in a recent case which I might talk about later but can talk about a little bit now because the public interest always seems like this very theoretical concept when I go and try and argue for it to be able to exert freedom of expression or to, for, for that to be weighed as more important in the balancing act um, when it comes to an application to report and when you've got actual children who are actually vulnerable and have been actually damaged right there by some terrible things that have clearly happened to them, and I go on, you know, about the public interest, people are there going, well, phew, okay, well, whatever. And the case I'm talking about was one where a woman had been murdered in front of her children in their home, and they had been left with her body. And the local authority wanted to prevent any reporting of that situation. Initially, they also wanted to prevent reporting of all the circumstances leading up to her death. And there had been considerable local authority involvement with that family, as well as police involvement. So that was already a problem. But then I was arguing to be able to report, it was important to me that you should be able to say what had happened. And the argument, but well, one of the arguments I made to the judge was the public interest is the two women a week who will be murdered next week, and the week after that, and the week after that, and all their children, some of whom will also be left with their mother's dead bodies, having seen her murdered in front of them. So the public interest in us being able to discuss what went wrong in these cases and for us to understand just how terrible domestic abuse is, how dangerous it is, and just how vicious domestic abusers can be, it's all important for us to understand because it's only by pushing that level of impetus that any policy change might eventually happen. For instance, we wouldn't have even been able to discuss the domestic homicide review in that case if that local authority had succeeded. So I suppose the message is to me, transparency isn't some nebulous concept and nor is public interest. They are very concrete and very real. That's incredibly interesting. And I think we will come back round to talking about that case. But Celia, what do you, what, what do you say 
is the benefit from your learning over the last year? So listening to Louise, what I'm very aware of is that she's had to argue what the benefit of transparency is and why it needs to be extended in the family courts. We haven't had to make that argument. The impetus for transparency in the Court of Protection has come from the judiciary. Um, and from a long tradition within the judiciary that transparency and open justice matter, that it lets in the light and allows the public to scrutinise the working of the law for better or for worse. That's Scott v. Scott in 1913. Or Jeremy Bentham, publicity is the very soul of justice. It is the keenest spur to exertion and the surest of all guides against, guards against improbity. It keeps the judge himself while trying under trial. And I just see this as being the legacy of a long history of judicial comments that Mr. Justice Hayden, as vice president of the Court of Protection, has firmly committed himself to. And at the point at which the pandemic struck and, and hearings went online and there were issues about there's now no public gallery and no guards for we people in the because there's no public gallery there is a problem with people signing in and being monitored and not being allowed to we can't see that they're not recording hearings which which is of course against the law then how are we going to manage this and at the very moment when it seemed like open justice might close down Mr. Justice Hayden did everything within his power to open it up. And in fact, hearings going online has made a huge difference to our project. It's what made it possible for so many hearings to have been observed by public observers. So I haven't had to make the case. I haven't had to argue. What I have had to do instead is to try to persuade members of the public why they should come into court and listen to a hearing. Why would it be interesting for them? What's the incentive for members of the public to come in and listen? especially when most of the hearings are directions hearings. So they're planning what is going to happen some way down the line when most members of the public are, find them quite hard to understand. When lawyers talk about Section 49 or, or weird reports with acronyms that members of the public don't understand. So it's more about trying to sell open justice to the public than it is about selling it to the judiciary. And then, so then the answer to your question is what's the benefit for the public? And the benefit for the public has been clear, I think, in the blogs that the public have written for our website. Most of the members of the public who have written for the website are working in some capacity in health and social care. They are responsible for the day-to-day -day implementation of the Mental Capacity Act. This is the law which is supposed to guide their professional actions. The opportunity to see how the professional reports that they write are used in the courts, how expert witnesses who come from their own backgrounds as social workers or doctors or IMCAs are giving expert evidence in court and to see how judges make these kinds of decisions that they are also having to make as part of their everyday life about where someone should live, about who someone should have contact with, about whether or not somebody has capacity to consent to sex. These sorts of issues come up repeatedly in the court of protection and in the lives of members of the public. And also, of course, crucially, in the lives of family members of people who may lack capacity or do lack capacity. And these are also quite a lot of the people who want to observe hearings because their loved one may be the subject of one of these hearings, or in some cases is the subject of one of these hearings. And they want to observe a hearing before their judge so that they can see what 
will happen or what the procedures to which they will be subject, what the Court of Protection feels like, what it might be like to be in there themselves. Can I just add something there? Because you got me thinking about numbers, Celia, the number of people who are involved. And you're talking about professionals as well as lay people who, who may you know, be facing these issues. But I got the CAFCAS figures through recently on, you know, the num- you, get them, you get them monthly as a journalist. I think you probably get them as lawyers as well, don't you? This last year, sort of 45,000 odd private law cases hitting the family courts. I mean, I looked back and it's been pretty much the same for the last three or four years. It's, it's going up slightly. So that's 90,000 parents. Average two children each, that's 180,000 people. Think about extended family, year in, year out, year in, year out. That's a lot of people whose lives are, are being determined by the decisions of the family court. And so they need to understand what it is they're going to get into, the powers the court has, and how to, how to, to deal with it, because most people don't until they're faced with it. Is that an indication of public trust in the system, you think? The fact that the numbers are going up gradually, but still going up, people take their concerns to court when they're when they're in a dispute with their partner that's a really interesting interpretation of it because if you have my if you look at my inbox which is generally flooded journalists always get people who complain of course because that's what you get as a journalist you get people who are wanting to fight against something they see as an injustice in whatever area you work in but I've done a lot of reporting on education a lot of reporting on social care generally And since I started reporting on family law, I have never had an inbox like the inbox I have now in terms of the number of contacts, the distress, the fury, the the indignation, really, at how people feel they're being dealt with. And this is across private and public law cases. I don't know whether it's that they have faith in the courts or whether that, you know, whether they are increasingly unwilling to, you know, one interpretation might be that Think about the amount of domestic abuse we have in society. The most recent CAFCAS estimate was that 62% of private law cases involve allegations of domestic abuse. Now, in the recent conjoined appeal, I think the president talked about it as as, as upwards of 40%. So it's a lot, whatever you're talking. Maybe people who feel that they've been domestically abused feel that they need to seek the protection of the courts because they can't manage otherwise. There might be a number of interpretations. Should we go back to Celia's point of um, suggesting that transparency helps all the experts and the elements of the system join up? I was interested in in hearing you say that. Is that is that something that you think is relevant in family law, relevant to the need for transparency in family law as well, Louise? Do you think there's a concern about that? I've not thought about it in that way. I mean, my focus when I go to court in a practical way is that my role is there to scrutinize the powers that are being exerted so in terms of the people who are there I I know that what I smell is fear when I turn up in a hearing generally followed by either defensiveness or aggression on behalf of the lawyers very rarely anything else but you know I write a column every quarter in family law journal And I write that because I want it to be kind of a conversation where I'm sort of explaining what the benefits can be or what can be achieved. And, you know, the pilot that I am planning at the moment, with a lot of support from the founder and chair of the Transparency Project, Lucy Reid, who's a family barrister in Bristol, is, you know, the the expectation of that pilot is that there is cooperation as much as is possible between reporters who go in to report and the lawyers, as long as there are lawyers who are representing the parties. And an attempt to come to an understanding of what each other, well, not you know, obviously your, your clients and, and what our interests would be, and an attempt which has been done successfully between Lucy and I, and in fact, North Tyneside Council, to find 
I wouldn't call it a happy medium. I'd call it an accommodation that we can both live with mm-hmm. in terms of protecting the identities of a family, of family members, and protecting my ability to be able to editorially write the story that I need to write to do my job. And so I think that there, you know, my impression has been over the years that a lot of lip service is paid to transparency by family lawyers. Very few have thought about it very deeply or indeed the benefits which it brings to to the whole sector, I would say, over time, because it's very hard to argue that it makes a difference to an individual case. But in terms of you being able to do your jobs better in a system, for instance, in a system that works better, might be better funded, who knows, at some point in the future. You know, how can you effectively make the case that I hear all the time that this is a system that is overrun and overstretched if nobody is able really to write about what the effects of that are on lawyers' health, on families' mental health, the effects of delays, which I know are pulverising for people, absolutely so detrimental that they can affect outcomes of cases. If we can't write about that, then nobody understands the system within which you are all working, let alone the decisions that are being made for families. I know um, delay has been uh, one of the issues in the Court of Protection as well. I think you've written a bit about about that, Celia. The delays are often within the health and social care system. And of course, the whole period during which we've set up this project has been post-pandemic. So some large part of that has been attributed to the pandemic and the difficulty of getting experts in to review peace condition because the care home is closed or the difficulty of moving P from one care home to another. So I don't feel on tremendously solid ground commenting on the way in which delay might work in the system more broadly, given the obvious effects of the pandemic. But I think the the key picking up on some of what Louise said there about what it is that we're reporting, we do see ourselves as having a collaborative working approach with the judges and with the lawyers in the court of protection, insofar as we didn't invent the idea that open justice was a good idea. They did. They can't do it without us. The transparency pilot in the Court of Protection was launched in 2016 and nobody came. Nobody sat in their public gallery. Nobody watched their cases. Very few people. I was there sometimes. I would be the only person and one journalist. So without us, they can't achieve that aspiration of open justice. Hence, they need us there to do it. And in order that we should be able to report accurately, which of course they want us to do, they have begun to do all sorts of very helpful things like opening summaries, which I understand are new in the Court of Protection. So we get between three minutes at the minimum and sometimes up to 10 minutes of background to the case, explanation of the issues. They tend to minimise their use of jargon and complicated language now. They tend to read out, if we don't have the paperwork in front of us, what is in front of them so that we too can hear what paragraph 37 of the bundle says. They tend to try to explain particular legal concepts. Some judges, Mr Justice Hayden in particular, will stop someone and say, could you just explain what that bit of law means for the public gallery? This is time consuming. So in terms of the costs of public justice, we're slowing down the process. We're making the judiciary and the and the council self-conscious in a way that they weren't before um, because they're constantly being reminded of our presence. Um, and we know that they read our blogs. Um, and one lawyer said to me, it's like reading the reviews after opening night. So there is certainly a sense in which we 
dependent on them for access to the information, but equally they're concerned with enabling our understanding and supporting us in getting members of the public in and getting the outputs there, the blogs that people read and engage with. Um, and they're interested in the kind of debates and discussions that we're having about the cases that we observe. So, and, and we are, I mean, in terms of legal literacy, we have increased that massively through the blog so that people are now engaging with issues around the Mental Capacity Act in a way that I really wasn't seeing before. And with all due to respect to Louise, Many journalistic reports, at least from the Court of Protection, have been written for the man on the Clapham omnibus yeah. <laughs> rather than for um, people with a more sophisticated, detailed specialist interest, whether that's personal or professional, in these sorts of cases and the legal arguments that surround them. And I think we've changed that as well. We've begun to engage explicitly, not just with the kind of headlines outcomes, but with the process by which decisions are reached. So you're saying there's just a different mindset in both the judiciary and the lawyers in respect of your field than, than Louise is describing in respect of family justice. It does seem that way, but I've, of course, most of the judges work both in the family court yes. and in the court of protection, and so do many of the lawyers. So I'm not quite sure how their mindset changes when they move from one context to another. Maybe Louise has something to say about that. Mm. I think that something changes very fundamentally when you're talking about children. I think that everything shifts in terms of understand completely understandably in terms of where everybody's focus is, because these are children who who will almost all of them grow up to be able to, you know, they will be fully conscious, um, they will be capacitous, they will have the ability to think about and want to understand what happened in their case, and everybody's prime concern is that they are not any further harmed than they have been already and that is clearly at the top of everybody's mind and that is right it should be it absolutely must be at the top of everybody's mind but I think what needs to happen and hopefully it will happen over time and that's what this pilot will hopefully test out and we'll have to you know as the media will have to show that we are worthy of being regarded as responsible because one of the things that I have to acknowledge whenever I make the argument for greater transparency and greater scrutiny is that the media is never going to be the Court of Protection open justice pilot at Project Sorry Celia. We are always going to need to get readers, have an audience, sell papers, because nobody else funds us, that's for sure. Um, we can't rely, as Celia is marvellously able to do, on people who are salaried and who do this either as part of their work or as volunteers. And there's there's a difference between what Celia's able to do and, and what my editors demand that I must achieve in my, in my writing. So I've got to write something that's almost certainly shorter than what Celia is able to produce, unless I'm very lucky and get a commission for, for a long read of several thousand words. Um, and I also have to pull out you know, if I'm doing a news piece, it's not my specialism news, but if, if I was doing a news piece, you'd put out, you know, the most grabby and salient points. There isn't the space to go into a lot of subtle detail. You only get that chance if I've, you know, if I've been given by The Guardian, say, a 5,000 word long read, which for this country, as opposed to the States, is pretty much the longest thing you will, you will ever get to write. I am really interested in what are kind of, you know, described as run of the mill cases, because they never are to the people who are involved they they just are not they are fundamental to how they're going to live their lives and as long as I can get space space or time if you're doing podcasts is the is the big thing if you can get space 
and you're allowed to focus and you're given enough funding to do a proper in-depth long read, you can do really interesting things. So one of the very first, I think it was only the second big piece I did on family law was when the legal aid cuts came in for private law cases. And I was very interested in how litigants in person were going to represent themselves in seeking non-molestation orders. And at that stage, that was before the list of criteria for which you were eligible for, for legal aid, although it's still you know, merit, means tested as well as merits tested, before that was extended. And my editor said, well, you're going to have to go to court and you know, show me what it's like for somebody um, trying to get a non-molestation order. And so off I trotted to the Bristol Family Court and, and realised very quickly that I wasn't going to be able to report anything. I mean, I had turned up on not the right day. Apparently there was a non-mall day where you turn up and I didn't know that. So I fetched up on a Thursday and it was on a Friday. Who knew? Um, but then subsequently I did, off the back of that, I did a piece looking at what it was like to go in a family law case, a private law case, and, and try, to, try to battle your ex for access to your children. And I managed to do that with three different cases, I think it was, in varying levels of depth, but with the cooperation of the parties who surprised me in how much they were willing to tell me. But that's the kind of piece that you can do, which does extend people's understanding of what, elite, what legal aid cuts has resulted in for many, well, obviously, as we've seen, hundreds of thousands of families, but also people can relate to it because it's not Johnny Depp. It's, you know, it's not some famous person. It is, it's literally, you know, Rob from, from North Tyneside, whose partner, who the court subsequently finds he's domestically abused, has fled down to Bristol where her mum lives with the kids without telling him. And now she's got legal aid and he doesn't. And he fetches up at court with a you know, plastic bag full of papers and his mum and dad who've come down on the coach and is representing himself and insists that he's going to contest this non-molestation order, even though the judge gently explains to him that if he does, she'll have to make findings and that will be relevant in her future determination of who the children live with and, and how much they see him. And, and he plows ahead nevertheless, and he doesn't have anybody to advise him that that might, might be best left you know, to lie. So those are interesting things because they, they could face anyone. Do you find then the, that the litigants are more friendly to your approaches than the lawyers? Yes, they are much less wary than lawyers, I think, would tend to. Lawyers are very protective, and I get that too, because you're seeing people at their most vulnerable. Often you will have followed them if it's, you know, well, I'm thinking about care cases here. I don't quite know how that would, how long you might, you know, you might be with them for a long time in a private law case, mightn't you? Um, particularly if it's very highly disputed. But, you know, you, you might have been met with them for months. You know the most intimate details of their lives. You know how hurt they've been. You know how hurt their children have been. So, of course, <laughs> you know, it is really worrying to have a journalist come along. I get that. But it is actually, in the end, up to them. It's up to your client. And it's up to you to advise them on how best to manage that interaction if they choose to go ahead with it. I still remember one occasion, and it's I think it's one of the very few, I can't actually remember another one, where it was a care case and the lawyer for the father came to me. And again, this was in the Bristol court. And he said, I just turned up at court. I happened to have a free morning and I was in Bristol. And I just thought, I'll go and see what's going on. I'll just sit in. I had no intentions of reporting because I had no commission. And so I went. I was going to go into this case and the lawyer just came up and he said, this is a really difficult case for this dad and we know that you can come in but we would really appreciate it if you opted not to and I, I discovered that a baby had died and this was the final hearing and the parents had been exonerated and I was and, and so what was the point of me going in 
to further distress a man who didn't want me there when there was that I, I there may have been masses of public interest issues who knew I was never going to find out this was the final day of the case if it'd been the first day it might I might have made a different decision but it was the last so there's a responsibility on the media too I think to use their ability even to attend quite responsibly because that's not what we're in it for. We're not in it to distress families. We're in it to hold the state to account, or we should. I think, um, Celia, there's been a positive impact in respect of the decisions or the law following on from the transparency that's been introduced in the Court of Protection. Well, I haven't got a before and after answer to that because I wasn't there before. But what the lawyers say is unequivocally yes, that um, there's more focus. Well, basically, because we're there, they're on their best behavior. And one of the things that means is a focus on the basic principles and showing that they are complying with those basic principles. Picking up on Louise's point about um, lawyers being more protective Recently, I asked to observe a hearing and got a response from the judge saying that it involved a litigant in person, that this was the first hearing and therefore she was not going to admit me. It was about two weeks ago. A few days ago, I got an email from that same litigant in person who said, I gather you are excluded without consultation from observing my case. It was awful. I would have liked to have an observer. There's going to be another hearing of my case. Can you come? And giving me the date. So just to make sure that lawyers are checking with their clients before declining public observation or journalistic observation. One of the issues I think still actually for lawyers in the court of protection is that they are anxious about approaching clients or litigants in person and letting them know that there may be observers present. And often their own anxiety about this and their own stress about this rubs off on the laypersons and then they feel anxious too. Whereas increasingly, if you can take for granted that this is a public hearing, there will be people here, they will write about it. And indeed, you may want to talk to them yourself. So several litigants have approached us, litigants in person, family members who've said, can I tell you my story? Because it's not how it seemed in court. And we're happy to listen. We're happy to incorporate some of their version into our understanding of what happened um, in reporting about it. So obviously there are people in court who don't want us there. And sometimes the judges, Mr. Justice Hayden in particular, have said, well, this is a public hearing. Basically deal with it. <laughs> but I don't know for I don't know, Cecilia, whether for you there are the same grounds on which you can be excluded as as a journalist can be excluded so from family hearings but I, I mean just talking about judges I've had really inappropriate questions sent to me by a couple of judges doesn't happen often but I once had a judge ask me who how I'd found out about the hearing um, was it at the behest of one of the parties and if so which that's completely unacceptable no I have actually been asked why I wanted to attend a hearing and I've been I asked said- that I've said, I don't need to answer that question. This is a public hearing. I would like to attend. And yeah. I was admitted. But uh, yes, I think yeah. any questions about why. If I am asked why, I will sometimes say, oh, I'm on the Open Justice Court of Protection. We write blogs about you. <laughs> I've been asked, I went, to, I went to a case and I had been asked by a pressure group to observe this case. And I told them that very unlikely that I will ever be able to write anything about it. But I was interested in the issues. So the, the judge and I've, I've blogged about this, the judge asked me, why, why did you choose this particular case? And I was really angry. Yeah. I was really angry. I shouldn't have to tell the judge that. It's yeah. none of their business why I'm there. I'm taking up my entitlement to be there. Yes. 
And I know all too well that there might be judges who might view an attempt by somebody at a party and how else a journalist going to find out in some cases about case you know about cases to to, to kind of uh, seeming to kind of you know I don't know garner the press to come and write about their case and 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 would take a very dim view of that and that's unacceptable any party is entitled to go to a member of the press who is entitled to go to a hearing and ask them to attend absolutely you're entitled to do that why should that be viewed in any dim way or why should anybody be anxious that they would be slurred by their opposed by, by their the opposite party's barrister, which has happened. If I am asked by a party to attend the case, I mean the, the sort of this is probably not going to be very popular because this is a podcast where a lot of lawyers will be listening to it. But I take really great exception to the sort of the politely phrased but vicious little comments that can be made by lawyers in court about me. They undermine your role there as a journalist. I wrote another blog about a lawyer who happened to tell the judge that I had been tweeting about the case when she had specifically said that I shouldn't be reporting anything until the end. And I was and I, I was absolutely gobsmacked because all I had written was that I had attended this case. It was a hybrid hearing and that I didn't think hybrid worked as well as either one way or the other. And so I had to wait until this barrister did his spiel, made me look terrible, And then I had to tell the judge exactly what had happened, because understandably, she was fed up. She was cross and her voice, the tone of her voice was kind of raised. It's like, oh, well, I am, you know, most surprised that Miss Tickle has done such and such a thing. And I thought, how can you have done that? Because all you will be doing is injecting doubt into that judge about my integrity. It's unacceptable. I would say we've very, I have not had any parallel experience in the Court of Protection and we're often made to feel welcome. We are, the words welcome to members of the press can be used at the beginning, sorry, members of the, the words welcome <laughs> to members of the public can be used at the beginning of hearings. And some judges make a point of thanking members of the public for giving up their valuable time and attending the hearing at the end. We are sometimes offered position statements by judges who then instruct the council to send them to us. I think it's a different world, Louise. And I think the the challenge for the family courts will be really to take what has been learned from the court of protection and see what of it can be applied and, and safely. I mean, there have been, as far as I know, no breaches whatsoever of the transparency order, despite the fact that this is a, a, a kind of rat bag collection of members of the public, including families of people involved in court protection hearings themselves, who are attending these cases, receiving position statements, writing their pieces and there have been no violations of the rules as far as I I should add that I have had extremely good judges who have even if they've not allowed me to report although that happens so rarely when I ask for permission if I ask for permission I usually get what I want I've had judges who have upheld my right to report in the face of strenuous objections by local authorities in mm-hmm. particular, who seem to spend public money like water on opposing journalists' right to explain that it's such and such a local authority that the judge has been highly critical of. And also, I would not have got this far in my reporting without a huge amount of support. And by that, I mean practical, actual lawyering from people who have given me pro bono time. 
May I ask you um, one of the points that maybe put Louise about transparency is if you were looking at a case with two private individuals where perhaps one party is making allegations perhaps of domestic abuse and perhaps the other side is making allegations of parental alienation, which is something that um, we often see in these cases, Is there a risk of damage to the litigants if a journalist is reporting on those sorts of allegations before they're adjudicated on? Is that a concern? If you're not identifying the parties, how is that a risk to them? If you're reporting on how the case is managed, whether the judge excludes most of the allegations of domestic abuse or indeed of parental alienation and only allows the litigants to try and prove one or two, And the litigant is then very upset that they don't have the chance to prove coercive control, because how can you attempt to prove a course of conduct allegation if there's no course (laughs) available to you to prove in court? If you're trying to report on those things, which is what I'm interested in, and you're reporting anonymously, and there's no local authority involved, so there's no particular reason to say where you are, although you might say that you're in... I don't know, the Birmingham court or the Manchester court or whatever. There's a lot of people who live in Birmingham, Manchester. I think even if you said you're in the Gloucester court, do you know what I mean? A lot of people go to family courts with allegations and, you know, contested private law hearings. If you are careful about anonymity, I don't see any problem. And your view, I suppose, is that you are trying to bring forward all of our understandings of how better to manage domestic abuse cases. Well, for instance, you have the, you know, the recent conjoined domestic abuse appeal. There was before that, of course, the notorious Judge Tolson case, precisely a year before. I went along and I watched the rehearing of those allegations. I was uncommissioned. Nobody paid me to do it. And I blogged about it because I thought it was really important, not just that there was clearly copious debate about Judge Tolson's failings and how he had, you know, come to his judgment. But I thought it was really important to see how the rehearing was conducted. And so I explained at the beginning that I was interested in holding that the whole system to account in that case, both how that woman was cross-examined because it was going to be a much longer cross-examination and also how the judge, and I was subtle, I hope, in how I put it, but I tried to explain that I was holding her to account too and I, and I blogged about it. And that's important because we need to know things in, in a you know, ideally, I would follow cases through over the, the months and sometimes even years so that you could see the progress that takes a big investment of time. But it's something that potentially could be done and could be you know, really fascinating and very educative. Can I pick up on that with a similar example from the Court of Protection that I've I've recently watched a number of cases involving pregnant women in which the court has intervened to determine how they give birth in hospital when they wanted to give birth at home, an induced labor when they didn't want to be induced, a cesarean when they wanted a natural birth. And these were women sometimes with schizophrenia, sometimes with learning disabilities. But the two that I think many people found particularly shocking were women with agoraphobia who wanted home births because home was their safe place and leaving to go to a hospital was very scary. And in two cases this year, different judges ordered that these women must give birth in hospital by force, using restraint, if necessary, to get them there. This 
I can see the sense in which it's an invasion of their privacy to write about it, in, 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 to attend the court hearings, to listen, to engage. But the public interest in this and the idea that, in effect, any woman who could be said to lose capacity at some point during her pregnancy or at the beginning of labour could be subject to these kinds of often urgent hearings in the middle of the night where judges hand down rulings about childbirth. The public interest in that is such that it really needs to be written about and it nearly really needs to have a kind of public understanding of what the risks are of home birth versus hospital birth cesarean versus not cesarean birth and to understand the role of the women's own wishes and feelings and beliefs in this and the grounds on which decisions are made that a woman lacks capacity. So I'm following through now a series of these cases as you are with coercive control and domestic violence, Louise, to try to understand how these decisions are being made. And indeed, working with a bunch of people in midwifery, obstetrics, gynecology, and and, um, other childbirth activist organizations to try to see if the judges don't need some kind of guidance, some kind of published guidelines endorsed by the RCOG or the Royal Society of Midwives that would help them to make these decisions better. And I think that's that's so interesting, Celia, because this is the very sharp end of both public policy, of how we regard women, of women's power over their reproductive health. I mean, very interesting in the context of the fact that, you know, the WHO released some draft guidelines recently saying that any woman of childbearing age should not drink alcohol to, you know, the fact that it even got that far is a comment on where we are at, that, you know, any woman between the ages of 15 and say 55 shouldn't drink without any comment on whether men whose sperm can also be damaged shouldn't drink. So it seems to be taking that away from, from family law, but it's not really because what Celia's talking about and what I'm talking about, this is the, dis- the courtroom is the distillation of all these views, the expertise, the knowledge, the um, the debating capacity, our, our ability to argue for our rights, and so it's not just that the public need to understand. We need to un- we need to know so that we can discuss, so that we can see where we are in society, so that we can debate, and so that over time, and none of this is fast, so that we can it determines public policy. That is what democracy is. And it takes a very long time and lots of Celia's blogs and lots of my blogs and lots of these kinds of podcasts for for us as a society to start to, you know, move forward in whatever way we choose to in a democracy, but without the ability to understand where we are going and, and what the decisions are made that affect, in Celia's case, a woman at a critical point in time, where the you know, where the focus is, is it on the woman? Is it on the fetus? Where is it? Where is our balance? What have we decided as a society? If we don't know what's happening, we have no idea. And these decisions made in courtrooms reach back into not just public policy, but public consciousness. So when the media report, woman with agoraphobia forced into hospital to give birth against her wishes when she wanted to give birth at home, every woman with agoraphobia feels frightened. Every pregnant woman thinks, God, God, I could be made to have a cesarean. And that in turn means that a midwife or an obstetrician only has to say, well, you know, it's much safer to go into hospital. And if you don't want to, we could, of course, make you. And there is that fear when people read of those sorts of stories. All right. Well, let me bring you both back to to family law and the issues for our members. After hearing your discussion and your thoughts, what is the message that you would each want to give to our members about transparency and 
about the future. Louise, may I come to you first? I think it would be that with goodwill and with some patience and with some time, and I appreciate that time is always of the essence, and with some willingness to think quite differently if challenged, it is really possible to work through to a place where a great deal can be reported in the public interest without the families that you're working with being at risk of further harm. I can't make any promise that nobody would ever be harmed again in the future. That's outside of my control and I, and I don't have control over the way that every journalist, editor or sub-editor who writes headlines will treat a story. But I think that the benefits of getting more robust decision-making in family courts because of regular challenge and a requirement on those who work within it to really interrogate what they do in the light of other people's views rather than just their own little ecosystem would be fundamentally beneficial to the children who all of you are working to serve. That's a positive message then. Celia, what's, what would be your closing thoughts for us? I guess one of the things that I have seen and that's rather surprised me about the growth of transparency in the court of protection is what good it's done to the reputation of the court. So the court did have this reputation of being a court that made draconian decisions, tearing families apart, chopping off people's legs without their consent and all the rest in secret, in a sinister, scary way, and took people's money for it as well. The main message that comes across from the people who watch the hearings is an amazement, really, about the person-centred nature of the court and how hard everyone is trying to put the person who may lack capacity at the centre of decisions made about them and to interrogate their values, their wishes, their feelings, their beliefs, and do the very best by them. So in terms of reputational management, I would really go for open justice. But that said, I don't actually think we sh I don't think it's a kind of balance sheet exercise where we look at the pros and the cons and should we do open justice for these reasons should we not do it for these reasons it's a fundamental principle it's not negotiable we simply have to find ways of managing the downsides and improving the upsides because publicity is the very soul of justice because it's a basic principle in a democracy there shouldn't really be an option well also a positive message for lawyers and our members then for the future Louise, um, thank you for that. If our listeners would like to hear more from you and about the work you're doing, where should they go to? Well, the, the next big project that I've got coming up is um, for the last two years, I've been working on making a Channel 4 Dispatches documentary about the family courts. It's specifically about private law, disputes between parents, where there are allegations of domestic abuse, parental alienation and tip staff removals. And that's going to be on the 20th of July at 10 o'clock on Channel 4. Thank you. And Celia, if um, our members would like to know more about your work and your project, where should they go to? So anyone interested in learning more about the project should go to openjusticecourtofprotection.org which is our website, and I'd commend you to two pages of that website, the home page, which has featured hearings every day, where you yourself can take the opportunity to observe a hearing in the Court of Protection. All the information that you need is there. And the other page that I would commend you to is the blog page, of course, where social workers, um, IMCAs, healthcare practitioners, a whole range of different people have written about their experience of observing hearings in the Court of Protection. 
Thank you both for your time for coming on the Resolution podcast. No doubt we're going to hear more about both of your projects, obviously, whether the Law Commission takes up your the proposals, um, Louise. And I know I, for one, will be a dedicated follower of your, your blog in the future. Celia, I've found it fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. That was absolutely fascinating. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. Remember to give us a review if you're enjoying these podcasts. And if you've got any ideas for future episodes, then please do keep them coming and get in touch. Mm-hmm.